Good day, and welcome to the United for the Messiah podcast. My name is Edward Davies, and today we will be looking at the book of Proverbs, chapter 6. But before we start, let's just open in a word of prayer. Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, as I am a human and therefore fallible, I ask that your Holy Spirit will guide me, so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Amen. Okay, so in Proverbs 4, we considered how all the advice, instructions and commands given to us by God through Scripture are meant to keep us physically and spiritually out of harm's way. Wisdom in Scripture is generally good advice for a healthy physical and spiritual lifestyle. The cautions in Scripture are given to us to keep us safe. And again, that safety is a physical and spiritual safety. And Proverbs 6 is no different. Solomon continues to impart wisdom to his son, and he warns him of four things in this chapter. The, so there's, def, there's four themes that we're going to look at today. The first theme is the caution of entering into rash suretyship. The second theme is advice on work ethics. The third theme is the seven sins that God especially hates. And the fourth theme is faithfulness in marriage and warnings against adultery. So let's start with the first theme, which is the caution against entering into rash suretyship. And let's read Proverbs 6, verse 1 to 5. My son, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth, you are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself, plead with your friend, give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Okay, so let's start at verse 1. My son. So Solomon is continuing to impart wisdom to his son. And in the book of Proverbs, Solomon, who is the author of most of the book, starts out by affirming, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He says that in Proverbs 1 verse 7. The wisdom imparted by the Proverbs is meant to be a guide for believers to help them in correctly applying knowledge, or in other words, be wise in everything they do. Thus far up to chapter 6, Solomon has been addressing his son. He has been imparting many words of wisdom to his son, among which he tells him to stay away from evil company. We see that in Proverbs 1 verse 8 to 19. But rather pursue wisdom. And we see that in Proverbs 1 verse 20 to 33, in Proverbs 2 again in Proverbs 3 and in Proverbs 4. He tells his son not to envy oppressors, that's in Proverbs 3 verse 31, but rather take care of his family, in Proverbs 5. He tells his son to stay faithful to his wife and to stay away from immoral women who may entice him to commit adultery. And in chapter 5, Solomon encouraged him to live a sexually pure life. And now today in chapter 6, I will describe this chapter as his advice to his son for building and providing a healthy family. Therefore we will have to look at how this topic of surety can affect his family life. If you become surety for your friend. So surety is defined in the Holman Quicksource Bible Dictionary in the following way. It says it is a person who is legally responsible for the debt of another. Should default occur, the surety would have to pay the debt or even be enslaved until the debt was paid. Judah became surety for his brother Benjamin to Joseph. 
and we read that account in Genesis 43 verse 9. Proverbs warns us against being surety for a person you do not know well. And that's in Proverbs 11 verse 5 again. So he's talking about co-signing a loan for someone else, even if you consider them a friend. If you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger. In this verse, Solomon mentions a friend and a stranger. He mentions the friend as the one you are standing surety for. And he mentions the stranger as the one the surety is meant for. In other words, the creditor. The shaking of the hands, as in today, signifies the sealing or the signing of a deal. So verse 2. You are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. A snare is a trap you set to catch animals. The illustration here is that someone is trapped into surety by their own words. This is always true, as no one forces a person into this kind of agreement. Our tongues get us into many bad situations. And James had something to say about our tongues in James chapter 3. In James chapter 3 verse 5 to 6, it says, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is set so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. And then it goes on to say in verse 8, But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. So in this situation it seems that this warning to his son was for in case he made a rash, uncalculated decision. And I don't believe this portion of scripture is an absolute prohibition against standing surety for another, but it rather deals with rash and un uncalculated decisions to enter into such an agreement, especially if you don't have the means to honor this debt. Uh, in the event that the person you're standing surety for defaults his debt, you have to pay um, his debt. That's the agreement you're entering into. So this view is supported in the New Testament where Paul offers to become surety for Onesimus in Philemon 1 verse 19. It says, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay not to mention to you that you owe me even your own selves besides. So here's an example of someone prominent in the New Testament standing surety for someone else. So it's definitely not a prohibition. However, it is a warning. So from verse 3 to 5, Solomon advises his son that if he has made a rash decision such as this, to try his best to get out of this commitment. Let's read verse 3. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. So the words come into the hand of your friend means that you are now at the mercy of your friend. The ability of your friend to honor his or her debt is now an uncontrolled variable in your life. Their spending habits are out of your control. Solomon Solomon advises him to go and humble himself. In essence, he is saying, put your pride in your pocket and go and explain your situation. Plead with your friend. This talks about how urgent he should be with his friend. He should encourage his friend to fulfill his obligation in an urgent manner so that he may be free from his commitment or that he releases you from this legal obligation and find another way, if possible, at that stage. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. And this thought builds on from verse 3. He should not only try once, he should be persistent in his efforts to reason with his friend. The words are similar to those of David in Psalm 132 verse 4 and 5. 
David says, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So here David does not literally mean he will not sleep. He means he will not rest until he has done that which he has uh, committed to do. Therefore Solomon is telling his son not to let this matter rest until he has resolved it. Verse 5 Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So to conclude his thoughts on the matter of freeing himself of the obligation of standing surety, Solomon now provides a useful illustration to demonstrate the urgency that is required. He should be as urgent as when the deer tries to escape the sights of a hunter and as a bird tries to escape or free itself when it is entrapped. What happens when a bird is entrapped or a deer cannot escape the sights of a hunter? The result is either bondage, or in the minority of cases I would say, or death in the majority of cases. He is likening the negative consequences of standing surety to death, using the strongest negative consequence to make his point. This section advises us to be careful about standing surety, on today's terms co-signing for someone else's financial obligations. I believe we can also apply this wisdom to our own finances as well, for example entering into credit agreements that is beyond our ability to honor. The Bible teaches us to be good stewards of what God has blessed us with. In Galatians 6 verse 10, it tells us that we should use what we have to be a blessing unto others, especially those that hold to the faith in Christ. It reads, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2, Paul says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. We need to firstly be good stewards within our family. If we have more money going out than coming in, then we are obviously placing our families in a negative situation. And that could have been avoided, you know. We are not talking about unforeseen things that happen that places us under strain, but things that could have been avoided. By rashly co-signing loans that we will not be able to honor or over-indebting ourselves, we are putting our families' well-being at risk. Secondly, Jesus told us to clothe the poor and feed the hungry. And he goes on. If we are being wasteful with our income, then we cannot be a blessing to others in need and we cannot fulfill this task or this uh, obligation given to us by Jesus. But before we go on to the next uh, theme, we cannot continue without mentioning a person in scripture that made himself surety for a debt that is insurmountable. We see it written in Hebrews 7 verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. The difference is that Jesus is the only person that can stand surety for all our debt. Our debt being all the sin that we have ever committed. The reason he can do this is because he made the ultimate sacrifice for us when he lived a perfect life, a life without sin, and he died on a cross as a sacrifice for our sin. And anyone can accept this offer of surety. It's free offer and it's open to all. Now, Solomon moves on to the second theme in this chapter, advice on work ethics. Let's read from Proverbs 6, verse 6 to 11. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, 
So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. You can hear the hardy does in the background here where I'm, <laughs> where I'm doing this study. But let's continue. So you can almost see Solomon's train of thought here. He starts by essentially warning his son against standing surety for someone, because there's a chance that the person may default on their financial commitments and bring his son to ruin. And then he moves on to rebuking people who are too lazy to work. And he's probably speaking about the same type of person who would default on his or her commitments. Because their laziness to work and provide for their own families um, is probably the reason why they also defaulted on their loans. It's almost a worsening of the condition. So let's look at verse 6. Let's start there. Go to the end, you sluggard. So Solomon is saying that the lazy person should ex consider an example in nature. Consider her ways. He's telling the lazy person to go and observe or to examine and be wise. Once again, wisdom refers to the correct application of godly knowledge. Solomon is giving us one of the best examples of hard work in nature, if not the best. The only other animal I could think of that works this hard is a bee perhaps. But ants are industrious little things. You spill something and accidentally drop, a f uh, drop food or even a few crumbs of it. And before you know it, there's ants everywhere. And they are always hard at work. Whenever you see ants, they are always moving with a purpose, however. Have you ever seen an ant standing around doing nothing? When you observe them, they are either walking somewhere or picking something up to take back to their nests. In verse 7, which having no captain, overseer or ruler, ants get on with their job at hand, even when they are not supervised. In Proverbs 18 verse 9 it says, You is slothful in his work, is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. And in Colossians 3 verse 23 it says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. And I won't labor this point too much, but the point is that even when no one is watching, we should be hardworking and trustworthy in our jobs. We should do it as if God was our boss or is our boss. In verse 8, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. In essence, ants work day and night when there is opportunity for work to be done. And when they are able to, they do it. And they do so without ceasing. The application for us is this. We know that in the times we are living in, that work is scarce and it's not a guarantee that we will have a job tomorrow. In this tough and volatile economy, nothing is guaranteed. And we need to work hard, be diligent and make provision for our families. Should something unexpected happen. Or you know that metaphorical dawn of the winter of our lives. Verse 9. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So Solomon is obviously not talking here about there being anything wrong with sleeping or resting. He's talking about lazy people choosing to sleep while they should be working or at least be looking for work. When will you rise from your sleep? And I can almost imagine Solomon telling the lazy people in modern terms, wake up and smell the roses. Or wake up and smell the coffee. It's as if he's urging that person to realize the truth about the situation. About his laziness. What he's bringing himself into, you know. Or what he's getting himself into by being lazy. In verse 11. So shall your poverty come unto you like a prowler. And your need like an armed man. So a prowler is a thief. And thieves come unexpectedly. And so will this type of man's poverty. It will take everything from him. And before you realize, 
that person will have nothing but before he realizes he will have nothing it's as if he was he was sleeping while he was being robbed and you can see how this fits the figurative language of someone sleeping as mentioned in the previous verses your need like an armed man it will happen with force and you will not be able to resist or do anything about it once it comes so there are some other passages about work ethics in the new testament paul in 1 timothy 5 verse 8 says but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever <laughs> that's very strong language by paul but in 2 thessalonians 3 verse 10 he goes on and he says he tells the church in thessalonica for even when we were with you we commanded you this if anyone will not work neither shall he eat <laughs> so scripture is quite clear about work ethics after all in genesis 2 verse 15 it says that god placed man in the garden of eden to work we are designed to work by being lazy we are rebelling against the institution of god now before we go into the next section i mean i don't want to infer any kind of meaning into this text or scripture but just think about it if god's word is so strong with regards to physical work how much more with the mission he has given us as the church as well as personally i mean jesus said go out um you know spread the spread the gospel you know uh, baptize people in a in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit that was the mission to the church um and our personal mission that god's given us so we need to really reflect and see yes we need to work hard physically but also in our spiritual and our and our uh, mission to jesus christ our mission of uh, that's given to us by god so now let's move on to the next theme the seven th sins that god especially hates so let's read proverbs 6 verse 12 to 19 a worthless person a wicked man walks with a perverse mouth he winks with his eyes he shuffles his feet he points with his fingers perversity is in his heart he devises evil continually he sows discord therefore his calamity shall come suddenly suddenly he shall be broken without remedy these six things the lord hates yes seven are an abomination to him a proud look a lying tongue hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans feet that are swift in running to evil a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brethren so you can see how solomon escalates his issue from theme to theme he started with a man who cannot honor his debt then he talks about someone who's too lazy to work and now he's going to talk about the worthless wicked man and i see this as a worsening conditioning of a person as a person gives into sin so i believe a person's conscience is is seared more and more and we'll look at that a little bit later in this passage as well we'll even look at the text where this is gives us a little bit of confirmation about this concept so verse 12 a worthless person a wicked man walks with a perverse mouth the hebrew word they translated into worthless is belial belial means an unprofitable or worthless person and to give you a feel for how strong the term is Later in Jewish culture, Belial became synonymous with Satan. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 15, we see this name. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? So you can see in the New Testament, 
Bilal was synonymous with Satan. So this wicked or worthless person walks with a perverse mouth, meaning he speaks things contrary to the natural order of nature. He speaks lies, deceitful things, and, and misrepresentation. And we see in Matthew 12 verse 34 where it says, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Meaning if a person walks with a perverse mouth in his normal way of living, in his normal day-to-day -day life, his heart is evil and perverse. That's the root of the problem, the root cause of the problem. Verse 13, he winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers. So following Solomon's train of thought, all these gestures are meant in a deceitful manner. You can imagine that all these signs, uh, or all these could be signs of deceit, or signals to aid him in his mischief. Also talks about secrecy, and you know, things that are do uh, being done behind closed doors. I mean, that's not uh, synonymous with Christianity. That doesn't line up with the... With the values of Christianity where we are open we walk in the light we don't walk in the darkness and someone in the Bible study um, when we had this Bible study on a Wednesday evening um, he actually mentioned and he and he said it kind of reminds him of the Freemasons um, you know where they also have these secret signs and um, handshakes and that sort of thing so yes it could it could be um, I mean the Freemasons came far and long after um, uh, th this passage was written, but I mean, in uh, um, in history and currently, there are many other examples um, that can fit into this sort of um, language that, that Solomon gives us here. In verse fourteen, perversity is in his heart; he devises evil continually. As we just read in Matthew twelve verse thirty four, this evilness is a condition of the heart. He almost cannot help but think up evil plans all the time. Because instead of filling his heart with the love of God's wisdom, he's replacing it with something else. Doesn't matter how hard a person tries to fill that void in your life, it cannot be filled with anyone other than God. He sows discord, he lives in a constant strife or contention with others. Then in verse 15, Therefore his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. One commentator uses the illustration of a clay pot, and I like this illustration. As fragile as a clay pot is, so is the wicked man. If his calamity comes suddenly, like a clay pot being dropped on the floor, so shall he be broken without any hope of being restored. And I like that figure of speech. Because we know when we drop a cup or a mug or something, and it shatters into pieces, we don't even try and fix it. We just throw it away. And of course there's no remedy in the world. But God can remedy any situation. You must always remember that. If someone is ever in this situation, doesn't matter what they have done, they can and should turn to God. God can restore anyone. And he restored Paul. I mean, Paul was persecuting the followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus restored him. In Isaiah, in Isaiah 1 verse 18 it reads, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be, like, be as wool. I mean, this is a promise in Scripture. From the same God. Old Testament, New Testament, same God. So now we get to the seven things the Lord hates. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. So a commentator by the name Morgan describes this verse very well. He says, The six and seven of the opening statement have the explanation in the description. The six are first stated, and the seventh is that which results, namely, he that 
soweth discord amongst brethren. So what he is saying is that the seven things the, there are seven things that the Lord hates, but the seventh thing is the consequence of the first six that he's going to mention. Um, that's the one view, and that's the view I hold to. I mean, it's not going to change the meaning of scripture. There's another a possible meaning where it's just a um, a style of poetry where or, or a, a, a means of emphasizing a point where he's saying six yes seven almost to emphasize that that uh, severity of the of the seven sins so these two are possible i like to see it in the first way as as seen by morgan and as we go through it i'll show you why i mean god hates all sin but solomon here lists seven that he especially hates and you will realize that all of these sins are serious sin against god and remember when jesus answered the pharisee in matthew 22 verse 36 to 40 when he asked Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So next to God, the most important commandment in the law is to love our neighbor. If we think about it in these terms, we begin to understand why God has a special hatred towards these sins. All these sins is something we do against our neighbor or something we do to hurt our neighbors. So let's look at this list. The first thing is a proud look. When you are filled with pride, you look down on others or you have a high opinion of yourself. And as believers, we should know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's in Romans 3 verse 23. Jesus in Matthew 5 verse 3 said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As Christians, we know that we have nothing to boast about. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31, Paul says, You glories, let him glory in the Lord. Everything we have and everything we have achieved is as a result of God's grace and mercy. We have done nothing in our, we could do nothing in our own power. To be deserving of anything the second sin is a lying tongue we hurt others through our lying we, all, we have all experienced this in our lives at some stage a lie can unintentionally hurt someone even if we told a white lie or lie to protect someone it still doesn't make it right in the eyes of God especially not in the eyes of God um, number three hands that shed innocent blood this is one of the ten commandments I mean, God, God created mankind in his own image. To kill a human who was made in the image of God is a terrible sin. But it's interesting to note the distinction between innocent blood as opposed to someone that is deserving of a capital punishment. Let's just consider the world we live in today, just for a moment. And can we think of anything or any act where people are shedding innocent blood on a daily basis? And where the majority the or the growing majority of people don't have an issue with it of course it's abortions there are thousands upon thousands if not millions with innocent blood on their hands just through this one act and it seems to be okay in the eyes of the world and as we saw a little bit earlier i mean we are made in the image of god and we are just uh, these babies have <laughs> i mean they were preordained um with a mission i mean how many preachers and how many 
possible missionaries um, are we aborting without you know giving two two thoughts about it any case let's continue with verse four or the fourth thing that god hates a heart that devises wicked plans again it's an issue of the heart when you make anything else other than god the focus of your life you are committing idolatry now the fifth thing is feet that are swift in running to evil they are not in a figure of speech falling into sin but they are running towards it there's no restraint no resistance anymore and it's almost as if their conscience is seared and here i'm going to talk about the verse i was speaking about earlier in paul in 1 timothy 4 verse 1 to 2 confirms such a view when he talks about the future events he said now the spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies in hypocrisy having their own conscience seared with an hot iron and it goes on so here we do see the the view of uh, your conscience being seared now we look at the sixth thing that god hates is a false witness who speaks lies notice he makes a distinction between a lying tongue and false witness who speaks lies so this is another one of the ten commandments it says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and this is something that is done to intentionally hurt someone once again speaking about your neighbor it's hurting someone the all these sins have got something to do with hurting someone else now we get to the last one some someone that sows discord among brethren in ecclesiastes 4 verse 12 it says though one may be overpowered by another two can withstand him and the threefold cord is not quickly broken in the community of believers this unity as illustrated by a threefold cord helps us from attacks from the outside the church has always been and it still is fiercely attacked by the world and this is done through satan's devices godly unity is therefore essential in the church someone that goes out of their way to sow discord strife and division within the church is therefore committing i mean the sin that i believe god hates most and this is what what uh, solomon is saying because through this act even if it's for just for a short period that community of believers are less effective in christ's kingdom even worse so some people may be put off by christianity altogether and we are talking about the eternal destiny of body and souls here i mean we know what's at stake heaven and hell is at stake if we put someone off from the faith i mean <laughs> we have to we have to um stand in front of god one day uh, one day and and we need to give account of our lives so i don't really do not want to fall <laughs> in this camp i mean god can forgive anything but i mean if it and, and i mean i hope i mean before i was saved i hope i didn't lead anyone astray i hope i didn't put anyone off from god and if i did i ask, ask god for forgiveness and i asked that i mean at some point in my life i can make it up i can at least reach that person or someone else would reach that person um to at least make them consider to change their minds um but yeah so now we get into the last theme for today's study which is faithfulness in marriage and warnings against adultery so let's read proverbs 6 verse 20 to 35 we'll split this last section um we'll read up to twi verse 29 for now and then we'll read the last couple of verses in the next next section so my son keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother bind them continually upon your heart 
tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the light, and the law a light, sorry. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom, and his clothes not be burnt? Can one walk on hot coals, and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. So let's stop here for now and handle these verses. Verse 20. My son, keep your father's command, and do not forsake the law of your mother. Once again, we need to remember Solomon was, was his father and Bathsheba was his mother. The laws and commands that were imparted to him was the wisdom of God. It's God's word and truth. The same God we worship, the God of Israel. They brought their children up in the fear of the, God of, of the Lord of Israel, which is the same God we worship today. And it's our only true God. So Solomon is encouraging him to always keep and never turn from their teachings. Verse 21, bind them continually upon your heart, tie them around your neck. This thought reminds us when Moses said the Israelites should bind the law on their hands in Deuteronomy 6 verse 8. The word of God should always be on our minds. We should strive to meditate on God's word day and night. Bind them continually upon your heart. When you have the Lord as your foundation in your heart, you still need to continually seek a deeper understanding of God. And the primary source we have to learn more about God is the Bible. The only place to learn more about God's will for our lives is the Bible. And we should let our worldview be shaped by the Word of God. We can only do it if it's only always close to us. Verse 22. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. In the Old Testament times, this proverb was probably only seen as an illustration used to illustrate the figurative effect of following God's commands and laws. But in John 1, we see that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and the Word was God. And the Word, who is the Word? The Word is Jesus Christ. God sent the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus to all believers to lead us, as this passage says, the Holy, Script, the Holy Spirit guides us through His Word. Keep us, the Holy Spirit guards us, and He is our guardian. And speak to us, the Holy Spirit is our constant companion. Verse 23 For the commandment is a lamp and the light a law. Once again Jesus told us in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. As born again believers, we sometimes hold on to the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. And I mean that is definitely and absolutely true. But we do it to such an extent that we think the law has passed away. And it has no value to us. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. When we look at the Sermon on the Mount as well as the book of James, we will see confirmation that these laws and commands still apply to us. It's still there to protect us and ensure we don't hurt others. In fact, Jesus got on to spiritualize some of the laws. And I'm not sp talking about spiritualizing in the sense that we don't have to abide by it physically. I mean, he takes it one step 
further, he goes deeper into the spiritual implications of the law. And we will look at an example when we deal with the next verse. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Reproof means admonition or rebuke. So Solomon is saying that the wisdom is imparted, the admonitions, the warnings, should keep him from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. If he was writing to his daughter, I, I, I imagine he would have said it was to warn her from evil men that entice women with their smooth talking. Or their pick-up lines. That's also what someone said in the, in the Bible study on Wednesday. I know that's, that, that's the advice I will give to my daughter, at least. Verse 25. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart. Not surprisingly, this is what Jesus tells us. Matthew 5, verse 27 to 28, it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this is the other verse I was talking about um, where Jesus actually goes one step further to spiritualize this, this physical law. So you should not even entertain any thoughts of lust. It's like a seed that seems small and harmless at first. But the more you entertain such thoughts, the more that seed will take root and start to grow until it produces fruit of its own kind and which is the wrong kind of fruit. Nor let it uh, allure you with her eyelids. Here's a warning not to be fooled by seduction. In Solomon's time, this happened through personal encounters. But in today's world, it still happens through personal encounters. But we are bombarded with media that uses seduction to allure us as well. They use lust as a means to entice us into buying into brands and so forth. And we have to resist and keep our eyes from the personal seduction as well as seduction through media. We should not allow the sea to even touch our hearts. Remember what I said about the uh, searing of the conscience and the um, that that seed being that seed growing in your life. I mean, we should cut that out at the root, and we shouldn't allow it to take root. But verse twenty-six: For by means of an harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. So we will see two examples in this last section of today's scripture where Solomon compares or contrasts a lesser sin to a greater one. And I, you can almost put the lesser sin and a greater one in inverted commas. The greater one being adultery in both cases. It doesn't mean he's saying that we should rather do the one than the other. No, no, no. He is rather giving us an example of something most of us instinctively know is a terrible sin. He then goes on to illustrate how much more or much worse adultery is. In this example, he says a harlot, in other words, a prostitute, and set, let's set aside for the moment the sinful deed of, of the act in itself, will probably cost a person up to a day's wage, uh, so that he has only enough money left to afford a crust of bread for the day. So, so that's a possible meaning of this verse. Um, like I said, let's put aside just the, the, the sinful act at, at the moment, which is also a terrible sin. However, the cost of adultery is greater than just a monetary value. Adultery destroys people's marriages and families and has a far more reaching, um, a wider reaching consequences than people realize. Verse 27. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? Of course not. I mean, he is likening adultery to playing with fire. Another great example 
and it's dangerous and at some stage you will get burnt. So I've got nothing more to say on that verse. That's quite clear on those two verses actually. In verse 29, So he who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. He is implying more than touching obviously. He's saying go in as in a sense of being intimate with that person. Shall not be innocent. There is and will be no excuse. These things don't just happen and you have allowed that seed of lust to take root in your heart, as I described earlier. We cannot harbor these things. We must cut it out at the core. Now let's read the last couple of verses. Verse 30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. So here's the second example I was referring to, in terms of contrasting one sin against the greater one. This time Solomon compares a thief that is stealing food because he's hungry, or stealing for food. He's comparing that with an adulterer. He is saying that if he is caught, if this thief is caught, someone may have mercy and compassion onto him, and may to a degree understand why he did it. I mean, we can also understand it. We've, we've almost got a little bit of, we can understand the situation that people are in today, and in those days, and they, they may steal because they're hungry. I mean, not that it is right or condoned in Scripture, you know. Um, but it says, he must restore sevenfold. In the law given by Moses, if a man steals an ox, he was required to, place f to replace five oxen for one ox stolen, for every one ox stolen. If he stole sheep, he was required to, place, to replace four sheep for every one stolen. And it also says that if an ox or a donkey or whatever else was found alive with him, then he should restore double. But there was nothing in the law of Moses telling us about this particular penalty of someone who stole in this manner. However, Solomon, who, had, who was the wisest person to ever live, said he should, should replace seven times the worth of what he stole. So he may have to give up everything he has, but he has a chance to clear his name. So whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. So such a person does not understand what he or she is getting themselves into. They don't fully understand the consequences. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, Paul says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. The other consequences of adultery listed in Scripture include a loss of honor and strength, that's given to us in Proverbs 5 verse 9 to 11, a ruined reputation in Proverbs 5 verse 14, bondage and death in Proverbs 5 verse 22 to 23, and this verse talks about the self-destruction of when we engage in adultery and in verse 34 it talks about the vengeance of a jealous husband and we'll still get to that so he who destroys oh he who does so destroys his own soul this is one of the consequences by levitical law adultery was punishable by death that's given to us in leviticus 20 verse 10 but solomon is referring to the spiritual side of this it may have something to do with the searing of your conscience as we saw earlier verse 33 Wounds and dishonor he will get. His reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. 
Therefore he will not spare in a day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. In Genesis 2 verse 24 it tells us that when we are married, a man and a woman become one flesh. God joins those two people spiritually in a special type of way. So when someone sins against a special bond, when they come in between it, through adultery, it invokes a special kind of fury. And uh, we've seen this, I mean, we've seen this in our lives. We've seen examples of it. I mean, a fury, this type of fury can drive a wrong spouse to seek vengeance. And people are killed. People are beaten up. <laughs> I mean, you know, it. it uh, people don't let these type of things go. And the adulterer will not be able to bribe or appease the wronged husband or wife by gifts. So the consequences of adultery, as mentioned in Proverbs, is frightening. And if anyone is involved in this act, it should strike fear into that person. If that person ignores this warning, there will be consequences, physically, spiritually, or probably both. But what if you have fallen into the sin before? Or what if someone is currently in the sin? Let's read John 8 verse 10 to 11. But do you remember the account of the woman that was caught in the act of adultery? And the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus what he thought should be done to her. Jesus said, You as no sin throw the first stone. Um, and when everyone left, this is what Jesus told, told the woman. Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, in John 3 verse 17 it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And this is another reason why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news. We know that if we repent and turn to God, God is faithful and will forgive us. So I encourage everyone, if, if this is something that you have been a part of and you haven't um, asked for forgiveness or you haven't turned back to God, if it's something that you're currently involved in, um, you can be forgiven, you can turn away, you can turn to God and He will forgive you. I mean, He's saying that He's not condemning you. Um, he came to the world to save us. So I ask you, uh, I, I encourage you, if you are in the situation or have been, turn to God and God will forgive you and can forgive you. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your precious words of wisdom. Lord, we ask you that your Holy Spirit will guide us to stay clear of these things that you have warned us against in your scripture and that you will give us the strength to resist temptation, no matter how enticing it may seem. And we also thank you that you have provided us with a surety for our sins to keep us from rightful punishment and consequences we deserve. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.